Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, are you getting tired of Throne of Eldraine at all yet? I'm really, really not. I was going to ask you how we feel about our, our hot take from last week. Is this being the greatest format of all time? Are you still there? I'm definitely still there. I want to draft this format so much. I've been so bummed that I haven't been able to draft as much as I would like. I am really looking forward to I'm on fall break this week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I am going to be jamming some Throne of Eldraine drafts before band rehearsals kick back up. Awesome. Very excited for that. Yeah, you got to you got to step it up here. I'm I'm crushing you a number of drafts here. You've got like three times the number of drafts <laughs> I do. Yeah, it's really depressing. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling it now. This is going to be a format where I crack 200 for sure. Like this format is just so, so good. So speaking of uh, the trophy leaderboard, I am 18 drafts deep, a paltry 18 drafts, (laughs) 38 and 15 overall record, picked up another trophy, five trophies, a couple finals losses today, and have a 72% win rate. So I have 62 drafts, I'm 131 and 55, 21 trophies, and a 70% win rate. So I'm at at that front page of that trophy leaderboard. Heck yeah, you are. Nice. Any uh, any arena drafts for you so far? Zero arena drafts. I have minimal to no interest in drafting this format on arena based on what I've heard about the bot so far. I know there was a bot update and it sounds like it's been better since then. And I know you and I are planning to do like one of our bot draft episodes. So I will be jamming arena that week, but I'm interested to see how it compares. My guess is that it does not hold up at all to how sweet this format is on MTGO. Yeah. So I just wanted to sort of give that as a little disclaimer that You know, for folks who are primarily on Arena or exclusively on Arena, we have not forgotten about you. We are very interested in getting you the best information out there for how to exploit the bots and draft on Arena and win there in best of one and best of three. But we are just going to wait a few weeks to see how things maybe smooth out with a few more updates. They did update once they released best of one and we'll see how things go. But we've heard some uh, some horror stories so far about the rampant Blue Mill and uh, Revenge of Ravens that may exist there. So may may stay away for just a, a couple weeks until things maybe smooth out. Yeah, Revenge of Raven's Menace is over now, I think, from what I've heard. Okay, that's good. All right, so that's uh, that's one point for the good guys. Um, so today, we're going to be talking about Finding Your Eldraine Lane. I love this title for the episode, Ben. So we're going to be diving in deeper to our pick orders, how those are influencing our decisions in draft, and look at a handful of draft logs from each of us where we've maybe done some pivot points talking about how 
rankings of commons versus uncommons versus what we have in our pile versus maybe pivoting into a, a different color or staying colorless, all that good stuff, all those like really nitty gritty decision points we're going to be getting into later today. But before any of that, we've got to talk about the Lords of Limited Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. We got a bunch of perks depending on the tier you want to give back at, but everybody gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord where we are breaking the format. I think we've broken it. We've got a ton of people who are crushing it on arena, laddering up, ranking up on the ladder. We got people who are climbing the trophy leaderboard on MTGO, people who are crushing GPs. We had GP Utrecht this past weekend, and I think maybe another one. Um, folks who had day two, a lot of really exciting stuff happening in the Discord. We have another stretch goal to get an extra episode every month out there, free of charge to patrons. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening at the Patreon. And one of the most exciting things is the amount of people that we have to welcome each and every week. We're going to shout them out on the show as we always do. Ben, are you going to help me out here in welcoming Matthew, Vishendra, Saktidat, Ben, James, Daniel, Haphazard Drafter, James, Wilson, Marcus, Yifan, Puck, Ryan, Keenan, Seth, Yemenson, Bernado, Ilmari, Michael, Tyler, Nelson, Alex, Jake, Andrew E, Stephen, Sam, Dan, Andrew A, Johan, Jordan, Gabe, Anu, Dot, Brent, Don, Ryan, Ron, Anders, Shanine, and Patrick. Welcome to the Discord. Holy patrons, Batman. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, this outpouring of love for the Lords of Limited Discord is incredible, and you're joining a great family. I, I just, every time I go on the Discord, I'm very proud of the discussion that's going on there, and just that we've got great people, and that as it grows, we're just adding more great people to the Discord. Yeah, I've had a lot of like downtime where I've had access to my phone to get into Discord, and I've really appreciated being able to dive deep on discussions. I've had a lot of talks about like mono white and aggro sort of in the wake of this past week, had a lot of discussions about blue because I still feel like I don't quite have a good handle on how to draft blue in this format. And just getting to use the discord for that to get a lot of people to be like, oh, here's a screenshot of this deck or like this draft or whatever that really helps me figure things out where I just wouldn't have that if I didn't have access to uh, all the fine folks in the discord. So thank you. Agreed. Lords of Women is now also partnering with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. And as part of that, we have a gift code for you to get get 10% off your order over there at coalesceapparel.shop, which can be used for any apparel on their website, not just our sweet Lords of Limited Choose Your Side t-shirts. And that code is LOL, all caps, LOL, all caps for 10% off that order. And you can pick up your hashtag I'm with Ben or your hashtag I'm with Ethan shirt. So to frame the draft logs that we're going to look at and dive deep on in a little bit, Ben, why don't we talk about finding your Eldraine lane and what that means and what we're, we're trying to give people to take home from this episode? Yeah, I think your goal in Eldraine Draft is to find the open deck for your seat. And I think you're trying to do that in draft, right? That's the goal of most drafts. But I think it's amplified in Throne of Eldraine because there's 15 viable decks to end up in, each of the color pairs, plus monoed color for each color. And there's even more variants of each of those decks based on rares that encourage you to build in a certain way and build around uncommons that encourage you to build in a certain way. So I think you're almost always capable of finding a very good lane for your seat. And I don't think that's true of every draft form. And I think sometimes you get pushed into a less desirable archetype or there's just not, you know, you're competing with people. I think it's really hard to get totally cut in a Throne of Eldraine draft if you're navigating well. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And so I think ultimately you're trying to read signals to find your lane and, you know, if somebody that's not, you know, familiar with drafting, what's a signal? You know, you might be the question that somebody's asking that's new to magic, maybe from arena or whatever. And a signal to me is just a card that's going later than it should based on its power level or replaceability. 
And so as far as replaceability is concerned, what I find myself asking a lot in Throne of Eldraine is, will I miss this card if I end up in this deck? And if the answer to that question is yes, oftentimes I determine that card is not replaceable and I'm a lot more likely to pick it. Whereas if I don't miss that card, if I end up in that deck, it's definitely replaceable and I'm willing to take flyers on other cards. Yes. So there's a lot of like stuff that then gets complicated the deeper you go in a draft, because not only are you considering the cards in the context of like, oh, this card is going later than I think it should, but also you're comparing it to the choice between the card and the pack that is powerful and the card that maybe goes slightly better with what you already have. So you're like, well, am I trying to get deeper into a color? But does this card synergize with another card that I already have? You know, if you've got a scarecrow, do you take this witch's oven? I mean, those are both colorless cards. So great options, of course, for any deck. Um, But, you know, if you do have colored cards that maybe match up well together, how likely are you to take that based on the cards in your pile versus the power level of perhaps a potential card that like shouldn't be going sixth pick? It gets very complicated the deeper into the draft you go. Absolutely. And I think when you're trying to decide between two cards that are close in power level, you're supposed to use staying on color as maybe like a tiebreaker or maybe a half a grade letter bump. So if a card is normally a C plus, maybe it bumps up to B minus territory. If it's going to match up well with stuff you've already got, things like that. And I think Ultimately, we, you know, we make a big deal on Lords of Limited about finding the top three commons of each color. And I think that's because it makes reading signals so much more effective. Can you talk about that a little bit, Ethan? Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, something that we've sort of coined, like you want to look at not only quality of cards, but quantity of cards. This happened a lot during Guilds of Ravnica, where we were paying attention to like a bulk of green cards coming around on the wheel. But I think it's important to sort of be able to have a distinction between like, I'm seeing a lot of green cards, like there's three green commons in this pack, and it's pick seven. But I also then always think if you know, if I'm streaming, and folks are like green seems open, my first thing that I always throw out there is have we seen any of the top three commons? Have we seen an out muscle? Have I seen a fierce witch stalker? Have I seen a curious pair? If I haven't seen those, it's hard for me to feel that green is actually open, even though I may be seeing some green cards. And so that's just like a quick way to give yourself a checklist. And that doesn't uh, account for, you know, you see like strong uncommons, you see maybe like a color committing rare going late, like those things let you know, perhaps that a certain color is open. But I definitely think those top three commons are going to be the most common cards that you see during the draft, I would expect to see them to feel that I'm reading a signal that a certain color is open. Right. And I think if you're talking about replaceability, generally, those top three commons for each color would fall above replacement level, right? Although that's not always the case. Sometimes the third common still is replaceable if the color Mm -hmm. is weak or not particularly deep. I think Curious Pair is a good example of that. Like, it's not a card that I'm like, oh, snap, Curious Pair 7th, we're really doing it. I got to dip into green. It's a card that like, if I've got some food synergies, if I've got some adventure synergies, then I'm fine to take it into my deck and be happy with it. But it's not potentially going to be the the signal that Fear Switch Stalker or Outmuscle might be. Right. And it's also important to know how the best commons stack up against each other, even though you often use color as a tiebreaker, pack one, pick one, to really help you delineate between them. So we've just got like a generic list here of the top commons. And this might not be exactly right, but this is generally where you and I are at, I think, and important to be able to start a discussion from here. So at number six, we've got Scalding Cauldron. That's single mana for an artifact, three tap, 
deals three damage to target creature. Then we've got Golden Egg at number five, two mana, enters the battlefield, draw a card. You can pay one, tap, sacrifice it to filter a mana, or two, tap, sacrifice it to gain three life. At number four, we've got Ardenvale Tactician, the one white white for the two three flyer, and has the adventure one and a white instant dizzying swoop, I believe, to tap two target creatures. Yeah, look at you. I didn't expect you to know that card name. At number three, we've got Scorching Dragonfire, one in a red for an instant, deal three to a creature or planeswalker. If that creature or planeswalker would die this turn, exile it instead. At number two, you finally talked me off a ledge. Reeve Soul, one in a black for the sorcery, exile target creature with power three or less. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. And that, that means that Bacon to a Pie is uh, our number one common in the set. Two black, black, instant, destroy target creature, make a food token. What happened here? I just have been more and more impressed with Bake the more I've played. And I still think Bake's playable in like a 10-7 mana base, Mm -hmm. much more so than I would have given it credit for. And I don't feel quite as strongly that my four drop slot gets glutted. Like I'm not thinking about Bake as a four drop necessarily, which is more of a premium removal spell. Yep, those are my experiences. I feel like the only times where I'm like really getting pushed off of Bake is one, if Black isn't open, where I'm not playing Bake or Reeve Soul anyway, or when I end up in those decks that are like 13-4, 14-4, 13-5 mana bases where black is my secondary color, those are the times when you're just like, well, I wish I had a Reeve Soul instead because I can't play a double black card here. Right. So now that we've got a pick order for commons in general and maybe in each color and maybe even have a way to like do tiebreakers or, or rank them across different colors, how are we then using the commons to stack up against uncommons or rares? I think once you know their ordering within each color, it's a lot easier to compare power level from commons to uncommons. For example, like take bacon to a pie versus, I don't know, Sir Conrad. Like I think Sir Conrad is a better card and most people would agree that Sir Conrad is a better card. And once you've got an ordering for the commons, you're comparing so many less cards and or it's easier to say it's close or to reach out to other people. Once you've got a defined order for all of the commons, there's so many less uncommons and rares to deal with that I think the whole process of deciding X card is better than Y card becomes a lot more manageable. And you're just finding where those top commons slot into all the uncommons or rares. And generally, as the power level, as the rarity goes up, the power level is going to go up, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in theory, they should. Those We are seeing a lot of cards getting more and more pushed. But I also think there's then this, this element of flexibility that we've sort of touched on in terms of like trying to stay in a certain color lane rather than dipping into multiple colors, but that colorless cards also get high bumps early in a draft because they leave you open for the rest of the draft. That's sort of what we were talking about last week about why these colorless cards are such important picks early in your drafts. Right. So Golden Egg and Scalding Cauldron in our top commons list is for early in pack one and are are going down the top commons list as you go deeper into the draft, right? Right. The, yeah. Hashtag delay the decision was like the big takeaway from last week's episode. And I think that's the reason. I mean, both of those cards are good, but as you get more clearly defined into whatever lane or role your deck is, you know, if I'm red black, I've probably got access to dragon fires and reeve souls. Scalding Cauldron gets a lot less enticing. If I'm black green, I don't need golden egg as much as like a flexible piece of food because in theory, a lot of stuff that I have already makes food or like maybe in black green, golden egg is still a good pickup because it is food, but it's not going to be as good in red white because I don't really care about it there. Right. I was talking to Alex today, quarter calls after I was done streaming, I rated him and I was trying to convince him that golden egg was the number one common and he wasn't having any of it, <laughs> but, he, but he was 
he was conceding that golden egg was good and that the better of a drafter you are, the better golden egg is. And so he was just like talking about if if we were going to say that on the episode that it was super important to qualify why. So I just want to throw this out there about golden egg. The reason golden egg is great is because it gives you so much flexibility in the draft. Like it itself is not an intrinsically powerful card, right? It cantrips, it fixes your mana. But if you're drafting in a way that you end up with like a 14 land mana base and then golden egg, a golden egg or two enables you to splash cards of two different colors, like a revenge of ravens and some other card of a similar power level, that golden egg did serious work that you picked up. But you're not if you're not drafting in a way to maximize Golden Egg's potential, it's really not going to be as good for you. Yeah. I think I would also add to Golden Egg's list of pros is that, you know, blue and white care about artifacts in the format and black and green care about food in the format. And so you also have a card that you're going to end up with some amount of the time that's just going to be good for you, not only because it allowed you to maybe pivot a pick later or whatever, or delay your decision of what your deck was going to be in the draft. But now at the end of it, you have, oh, I have a card that is going to be good in my blue red deck because it draws me an extra card for two mana. Like it just does so many tiny little things that are great in the game and are great in the draft. Right. And so back to our top commons list and replaceability. I think once you've ranked all these top commons and you try to fit them in with the uncommons and the rares, you just get a line sort of in your mind where cards are either above or below replacement level, which is probably, you know, all C's are replaceable. And some C pluses even, I think, fall into replaceable territory. And I think specifically, it's interesting to look at blue because I think you and I have both found that it's very difficult to get into blue in Throne of Eldraine because a lot of the commons in blue are replaceable. They're at replacement level until you know you're blue. And then a lot of blues commons go way up in value because they play so well together. So if you think about like didn't say please one blue blue instant counter target spell that player opponent mills three cards. That's not a great card in a vacuum. It's like a C minus maybe if you're being generous. But once you have Merfolk Secret Keepers that mill four or so tiny to shrink your opponent's threats while you're milling your opponent with didn't say pleases and Secret Keepers and you're holding all that stuff up at instant speed or Witching Well, you're holding up at instant speed. You know, three blue tap sack the artifact to draw two cards. All of that stuff goes up in value once you know you're in blue and you want to be picking blue cards. But prior to that point, they're all super replaceable. So it's difficult to get into blue without uncommons and rares pushing you down that route, I think. Right. Unless you're just like sort of soft forcing it and deciding like, well, I think blue black mill is a really good deck or blue black control is a really good deck. And so I'm going to like hedge that way in the draft. I have a preference for it. I'm going to make my preference picks towards that deck. I think that's a way to do it. But if, you know, last week we said that Merfolk Secret Keeper was the number one blue common. And if that's true, and I don't have enough reps with blue to be able to like stand by that. But if that's true, it's, you know, hard for me to be taking Merfolk Secret Keeper in the same way that I'm taking other top commons like Ardenvale Tactician or Outmuscle or whatever. Right. I do think that's true because I think Merfolk Secret Keeper makes all these other cards better. I think that's why it's the best blue common because it makes the deck tick and it makes all these other cards good in the deck Mm -hmm. yeah i think it makes blue more likely to be a strong base color for you whereas in other decks where blue is your secondary color i think it's less important especially because you can't do like blue blue on two or you may not have blue in your opener to be able to mill them and uh, also likely that if like another color is your base color that the mill game plan is not your number one game plan right and so all of this being said, I think this is why we spend so much time and energy and discussion on the podcast early in the format to try to identify the top commons. I literally feel like once we have a correct top commons list or close to top commons list, I feel super comfortable drafting. 
I feel and prior to that point, I feel very tentative when I'm navigating the draft and I'm I'm actively trying to evaluate if my top commons are right. Because if you get the top commons wrong, your win rate suffers a lot, I think, because I depend so much on the top commons for how I navigate the draft. Right, because it's not only the things that you expect to be the most common that you'll see, like you're trying to be like, oh, cool, like I have multiple Ardenvale Tacticians in my white deck. But if you don't think Ardenvale Tactician is the best white common, then not only are you going to end up with fewer of them, but you're also not going to maybe pick up on like, oh, I'm seeing this sixth pick. This is probably a white signal. Like if you think Trapped in a Tower is better than Tactician, you may not value that Tactician as being as good as it actually is. Right, absolutely. So with all of that, we're going to take a look at some drafts here and try to get pretty granular on why certain cards are the pick. And I think you are and I are fairly in line on how we've navigated both of these drafts. We've got some of yours and some of mine. So why don't we kick it off with one of yours? Okay, so uh, pack one, pick one here. I'm going to forego saying any of the commons because we don't have any of the top three commons here in any color. And unless our uncommons and rares are terrible, there's really no reason to focus on them. So then looking at the uncommons, I'd say really the only one uh, in contention for me is Arcanist's Owl. That's the uh, Azorius hybrid uncommon. So four of either white, blue in any combination for a 3-3 artifact creature bird with flying. When it ETBs, you look at the top four cards of your library, you may reveal an artifact or enchantment card from among them and put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I got to say, Ben, one of my greatest feelings in this format is Arcanist's Owl revealing Arcanist's Owl. Ooh, that sounds delicious. So good. Um, But I believe it will not be the pick here as our rare is pretty busted. It's Murderous Rider, one black black for a 2-3 with lifelink. When it dies, you put it on the bottom of its owner's library, but can also go on an adventure of Swift End, which is one black black for an instant. Destroy target creature or planeswalker, you lose two life. Right. Yeah. Murderous Rider is just far and away the pick. I think it's better than any common or uncommon. Yes. And just to give some context to our other two commons, they're Giant Opportunity and Joust. So Joust is the knight fight card where your creature gets plus two plus one if it was a knight. And Giant Opportunity is the sack two foods to make a seven seven or you get three food tokens. Both of those are replacement level until you know you're in that deck, right? I think Giant Opportunity is just bad. In my opinion, I have not been impressed by that card. I don't think it's uh, a, a very good reason to like try and get a bunch of food. And Joust is just kind of underperformed for me. Um, a lot of the knights uh, end up being like low drops that have like one toughness. So it's really hard to make this a good fight spell. Um, so I, I have both of those pretty much below replacement level at, at the moment. Yep. Moving on to pack one, pick two. What's going on there? Okay. So pack one, pick two. Again, I'm not seeing anything crazy uh, in terms of commons. I think the only one that is currently in both of our top three commons. Do, do you still have Merchant of the Veil at number three in red? I think so. I'm also on Weaselback Red Cap, the single red one one that has one red pump to give it plus two plus oh. I think that might be edging it out for me. You're just drinking the Court of Calls Kool-Aid all the time, aren't you? I I had my eyes on that card long before. I I, I almost put that card as a top red common. My the only my love the of the two one red the, common, not in the top red common, <laughs> the top the third <laughs> best red common. Good God, only only my love of Blood Haze Wolverine kept me from putting that in my initial top three red commons list. I think Rimrock Knight is, if any creature is going to edge out Merchant of the Veil for me, it's Rimrock Knight. I love that card. But anyway, Merchant of the Veil is the two and a red, two, three. You can pay two and a red to discard a card and draw a card. And it also has the Adventure of Haggle, single red instant. You may discard a card if you do draw a card. So that's the only one here that I think is in our top three in any color. Yes, I agree. 
Uh, moving on to the uncommons, we've got some interesting options. There's a witch's oven, single mana for an artifact, tap, sack a creature, create a food token. If the sacrifice creature's toughness was four or greater, create two food tokens instead. There's Wandermare, which is one green-white for the 3-3 three, three horse. Whenever you cast a creature spell that has an adventure, put a plus and plus one counter on it. And then there's a rare here, Castle Lockthwain. That's the black land. Uh, enters the battlefield, taps unless you control a swamp. It can tap for a black mana, and you can pay one black black, tap it to draw a card, and then lose life equal to the number of cards in your hand. Yeah, so I think Wandermare might be the most powerful card in the pack, but the fact that that means giving up on Murderous Rider does not excite me a lot. So Wandermare is probably like a B minus or something. But the fact that it means I can't play my first pick means I just am not into it here. Right. And so then I think there's something very tempting about going, well, I picked a black rare that I really want to play. And there's Castle Lockthwain here, which is going to go in a heavy black deck. That's where it's going to be playable. And so maybe I should take that here. Uh, And I think our experience with the castles has led us to come much lower on them. Like I came in hot on almost all of them as B pluses. And I'm not considering them as pulls into a color anymore. So that puts them out of the B grade range for me. And maybe Castle Lockland is like a C or a C plus. But the amount of times you're going to activate this, even in three matches of magic when your deck can support it, is pretty minimal. Like you just don't often have the time for this. Maybe it'll draw you a card once or something. But I've re- I've played with this card a number of times and I've rarely felt like I've gone off with it. I, I can cite like one game where it was very, very relevant at helping me not flood out. But other than that, I just don't think the castles are really worth it. So that brings me to Witch's Oven, which I think is a, not only a very good card to build around as a, a sort of engine with a number of different things, like a food enabler at a consistent rate, a sacrifice outlet going well with Cauldron's Familiar or Witch's Broom, etc. but it's colorless. And so that really excites me to take it here because it lets me delay my decision. So I think there doesn't require a lot of setup for Witch's Oven to be good, and taking it second is when I feel like I can maximize it as a build-around. Yeah, most of these cards here, you're not going to miss. And even Wandermare, you're not going to miss at this point, I think. If green-white is open, your green-white deck's going to be good whether or not you have a Wandermare. Mm-hmm. And Witch's Oven is just such high upside, right? Because there's Sorcerer's Broom also at Colorless that combos with it. And if you just get both those cards, you feel great. Yes, absolutely. So I'm happy to grab a Colorless card there, and then I move on to pack one, pick three. And again... We're not seeing anything in the top common range here. So that brings me to the two uncommons. And we've got a Joust, the red fight spell for knights, and an enchanted carriage, five mana for a 4-4 vehicle, enters the battlefield. You make two 1-1 white mouse creature tokens, and it has a crew cost of two. Yeah, I think that's just clearly the pick here. It's colorless. It's a fine card. It keeps you open. And the fact that there are not any top commons here means you're not really getting much signal-wise to try to find a direction because a rare is missing and an uncommon is missing. Exactly. And you're thrilled to see this carriage here because it helps you. You're like, great, this is a colorless card. It's totally fine and playable and maybe even good. And I'm happy to put it in my deck and then I'll figure out the rest later. It's just the best card in the pack and it's colorless, right? Yes. Yeah. It just feels great to take it here. So then pack one, pick four. Now we're seeing some stuff. So we've got a top common here. We've got Fierce Witch Stalker, the two green green for a four four with trample. When it ETBs, you make a food token. And so that's I think 
we're starting to get into signal range here in pick four. So I'm seeing that, but I'm also seeing three fairly strong uncommons. We've got Sage of the Falls, four and a blue for a two five. When it or another non-human creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card if you do discard a card. We've got Oakham Adversary, three and a green for a two three with death touch. When it deals combat damage to a player, draw a card and it has a cost reduction of two if your opponent controls a green permanent. And then there's Drown on the Lock, which is blue-black for an instant. You choose one. You either counter target spell or destroy target creature with CMC less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard. Yeah, so lots of cards above replacement level here to choose from. And we've left ourselves a path down our, our draft lane here where we're pretty open. So we've got Murderous Rider as our only color card and Witch's Oven and Enchanted Carriage. So I think you can make a case for any of Witch, Docker, Sage, Okame Adversary, and Drown on the Lock. Drown on the Lock is the most committing because if you get pushed off of black you also get pushed off of drown in the lock so i think that's going to rule that out for me here i'm pretty gold card averse as far as these like the split gold the hybrid gold cards i'm all about but yeah gold color pair cards i have to know pretty solidly that i'm in that color pair or the pack has to be pretty weak before i'm aggressively taking those cards here's another thing about the dual gold cards that uncommon is that a lot of them are cheap like Steel Claw Lance is just black red. Inspired Veteran is just white red or uh, Merrileaf Pixie is just blue green. And these are cards that you want to play early, but a lot of the time your mana base is not something where you want to do that. Like you want to play 11-7. That doesn't mean you're never going to see your second source, but it doesn't guarantee that those cards are going to be played early. So Drown in the Lock, not suffering from that as it's a removal spell, it's interaction. You're not mad about it later in the game. But a lot of the other ones I think sort of get uh, knocks against them, at least for me, because I don't think I will reliably cast them on two a lot of the time. Right. Just because of how you're looking to build your mana base. I felt that the most with Merrileaf Pixie, the blue green 2-2 flyer that taps to add blue or green. Blue green may be the red white from M19 of this format for me. I'm 62 drafts deep. It's the only color pair I haven't tried. I have drafted it once and it was very good. It was like a base blue green splash black for Lockmere Serpent deck. Ooh. It was real good. Nice. All right. Well, um, maybe, I, I'll, maybe I'll get that sometime. And I do think blue green does want to ramp. Like I think the description that R&D put out is it. I think you're blue green ramp. You're drawing all the cards. You're big mana. Yeah. I've also seen some good blue green tempo decks from my opponent's side of things. But yeah, I do believe that blue green can get there. I just haven't gotten there in draft yet. So back to this pack, the two green cards, I think adversary is better than witch stalker. I think just by comparison. So both of those, I would probably actually Fierce Witch Darker, I'd probably give a B minus. Okay, my adversary, I'd probably give a B, I think. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at too. I also think because it's pack one, pick four, and this would be my first green card, I do give adversary a slight bump here. I don't know if it's a full like gradation, but I do give it a slight bump for being single green versus double green. So even if I thought that like these cards were slightly closer in power level, if I didn't have adversary as a more powerful pick, I would give it a slight bump for being single green here. And then you're comparing Adversary to Sage of the Falls, and that's closer. I still think Adversary is a better card. Sage is probably like B minus, C plus ish. So I think I would land on Adversary as the pick. Yeah, and that is where I landed as well. Uh, pack one, pick five. Again, no top commons to be found. Another Merchant of the Veil, if that's in our top three red commons. And then moving on to the uncommons. And moving on to the uncommons, we've got a once in future, the three and a green instant to return target card from your graveyard to your hand, put up to one other target card from your graveyard on top of your library, and then you exile it. But if you pay the adamant cost, you just get both cards into your hand. And then Elite Headhunter, which is the Rakdos hybrid 2-3 with Menace, and you can pay triple Rakdos 
to sack another creature or artifact to deal two damage to target creature or planeswalker. Yeah, I think this is very close between both of these uncommons here. And I think I would land on once in future having just picked up a green card and two very good green cards in the last pack. And we have not seen a lot of black since our pack one pick one. I think all of that, despite the fact that both of these are close in power level, would lead me to give the tiebreaker to once in future here over elite headhunter. And so for me, while I agree that we hadn't seen a lot of black yet, I really, really, really want to play this Murderous Rider, if at all possible. It's super powerful. We've got two other colorless cards. And I ended up taking Elite Headhunter because I felt like, well, I could go mono black with this. I could go black red with this, or I could go mono red with this and give up on the Murderous Rider that I already had. Uh, whereas I do think once in future going with adversary is is totally reasonable. I just really had the card that was already in my pile of Murderous Rider edge out once in future is the option here, which may not have been correct, but that was my thought process at the time. Yeah, I think that's a close pick. And there are so many picks like this in Eldraine where I just don't feel like it's necessarily the most important to find the right answer. As long as you're drafting in a way to leave yourself flexible, because you're going to at some point find a lane that just ends up beating you over the head. That has been my experience. Yes, I totally agree. So then pack one, pick six, we're thrown for a little bit of a doozy, a dizzying swoop, if you will. Uh, there's an Ardenville tactician here in the pack, the one white, white, two, three, knight with flying that has the adventure to tap two creatures. That is a huge signal here for me, I would say, because we're seeing what I have as definitely the best white common and one of the best commons overall in the format coming to me pick six. So I compare that to the only other card that I would give a, a consideration to based on what we've done and based on power level, which is Rampart Smasher. This is the Gruel Hybrid Uncommon for a 5-5 giant, and it can't be blocked by knights or walls. Yeah, I think I would land on Tactician here over Rampart Smasher, and it sounds like you did as well. I did as well, though I think, you know, it, I think there's a world where you go OK Adversary into Once in Future, and then you see the Smasher, and there are thoughts of Mono Green or Green Red in your future, and I think that's also a reasonable pick. So just thinking about those cards on power level, but I just took the Tactician to keep myself super open. So now I have two colorless cards. I got a black card, a green card, a white card, and a black-red hybrid card, and I can do anything. I feel totally fine, and I especially feel great in this next pack when I see a Sorcerer's Broom to go along with my Witch's Oven. Yeah, you're really baking up a stew there. Yeah, for sure. So there's some interesting stuff that happens as this pack rounds out. I get a pick eight and a pick 10 Wildwood Tracker. This is the single green for the 1-1. One, one. When it attacks or blocks, if you control another non-human creature, it gets plus almost one until end of turn. I do believe that this is a good like aggro one-drop green deck just like smash face go really really low to the ground and i see this as a deck that you get into just like this when you see like a couple of them late and then we also had pack one pick nine the arcanist's owl from our first pack wield whoa and even though i didn't have any blue cards at the time and i only had one white card in ardenfield tactician I took it because that's a huge signal to me. And I get to take it there because I have three colorless cards in my pile, right? I have Oven, Broom, and Enchanted Carriage. And then I've got a bunch of different directions I can go in based on what happens in the next pack. Right. And the rest of the cards in that pack are just way below replacement level. And Arcanist Owl, if white ends up being crazy open and you end up getting deep into white, you're really going to miss that Arcanist Owl. Right. Whereas otherwise I could take what? Like a gingerbread cabin out of this pack? The green land or like... 
there's a Lockthwain Gargoyle so I could stay colorless. But like these are just bad cards or cards that I don't really care about that much. Whereas Arcanist Owl, as you said, I will miss that. If I end up in a deck that can cast it and I don't have it in my pile and I could have, I'm going to be really bummed. Yep. So that deck sort of found its direction in pack two pick one when I opened up a Garrick. And I did end up going black green. But it was a pretty awkward deck to build because I ended up super base black with like three Lost Legions. That's the one black, black, two, three ETB scry two. So I had a bunch of those wanting to lean black because I also had a bacon to a pie and not a ton of green. But then I also had four of these Wildwood trackers, the one drops in my sideboard. So I was like, towing the line between like what's the flavor of this black green deck i'm gonna end up in and ultimately because of the power of garrick and witches oven is inevitability i ended up slanting more black but i did end up siding into an aggro version multiple times when i was like i don't think my late game is as good as my opponent so i'm gonna try and get in under them and i would like cut all the legions bring in all the trackers so it was a cool deck to get to pilot interesting yeah. Yes, yeah, so we're going to check out one of my drafts next. So pack one, pick one, you take a seat and you see one top common among your commons. There's a Scorching Dragon Fire, one in a red for the instant, deals three damage to your creature Planeswalker. And if that would die this turn, exile it instead. Moving on to the uncommons, there's Mad Ratter, three in a red for the one, two. When you draw your second card each turn, create two, one, one black rat creature tokens. There's an Elite Headhunter, the Rakdos Hybrid card, two, three menace. You can pay triple Rakdos, sacrifice another creature or artifact, and Elite Headhunter deals two damage to target creature or player. There's a Burning Yard Trainer, BYT, <laughs> four and a red for the three, three Trample Haste. And when it enters the battlefield, another target knight you control gets plus two, plus two and gains Trample until end of turn. And your rare, Osworn Knight, one black, black for the zero, zero, ETBs with four plus one, plus one counters, attacks each combat if able. And if damage would be dealt to it, prevent that damage and remove a plus one plus one counter from it. So you have this pick order. And so that lets you know that Scorching Dragonfire is the only common worth considering. So then you get to just shortcut and go, okay, how am I comparing that to the three uncommons and the rare? And I think Scorching Dragonfire is better than Burning Yard Trainer. Burning Yard Trainer is like totally fine as a top end card for red white knights or red black knights but you don't need to prioritize it you'll get cards like that it feels like certainly as a pack one pick one it's below replacement level in that effect whereas scorching dragon fire isn't i would also take it over elite headhunter just as a you know less color committing card a card that's going to be super splashable depending on what my mana base is whereas you know headhunter is a card that i like but I don't need to take it here. Mad Ratter, I really like. I think it's a super strong build around, like a build around B+. I still think I might take Scorching Dragonfire over it, though this is close, right? If Dragonfire is like a B- or a B, Mad Ratter is a build around B+. But how often am I going to end up in a deck that maximizes it? Whereas if I end up in any red deck, Scorching Dragonfire is going to be great. And then that then leaves me with the comparison of where do I rank Scorching Dragonfire versus Oathsworn Knight. And Oathsworn Knight I have as just a rock solid B. Um, it's really been impressive for me. I know we had a discussion in Discord. I think someone had ended up playing with the card a few times and found it lackluster, especially when they have, were facing down a Spore Cap Spider on the opposing side of the battlefield, which does sound fairly miserable to me. Um, I have not had the misfortune of that yet, and I've really been impressed by Oathsworn Knight. So it's pretty close for me between this and the efficient removal spell, and I would end up going with the rare here. 
Yeah, I think I'm also on Oswar Knight, and I did pick that. Between Dragonfire and Mad Ratter, I think I'm on Ratter over Dragonfire because I think there's also just self-contained card draw synergy in red, right? You've got mm-hmm. the instant speed tormenting voice to draw to. You've got Merchant of the Veil to trigger second draws. So I think you can get there in with Mad Ratter solely with red cards, and I think it goes very well in red-blue or red-black. Yeah, I guess my only problem with it outside of red-blue is I feel like, yes, you can have a deck where you like have some merchants, you have a thrill or whatever, but it doesn't feel like you're going to have certainly not in red, green or red, white. Like you're just not going to have other cards that care about those cards. So your deck is going to be torn in different directions. I feel like there's going to be a lot of tension in your deck building and drafting when you think about Mad Ratter as like, well, I can get there in any red deck. And I believe that's true to an extent, but I think that's going to make the deck weaker oftentimes. Yeah, I hear that. That makes sense to me. So you grabbed Oathsworn Knight here. What happened next? Pack one, pick two, see the following cards as options. The only top common here in our top three commons for each color is Trapped in a Tower. One in a white, enchant creature without flying, enchanted creature can't attack or block, and its active abilities can't be activated. It's funny how much I've come around on Trapped in a Tower. It's really good, yeah. I mean... I was hating on it so hard, and it's a white signal for me, like, pretty clearly now. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like I'm not generally I'd say two is where I'm happy at. And then I feel like it starts to get diminishing returns. Like it's not a card that I'm like, oh, I'm jamming four of these in any deck, but it's good. It's it's. it's I think other card. people are even higher on it than we are still, though. So it does feel like a pretty big signal when you see it. Yeah, I feel that. And then moving on to uncommons, there's a steel claw lance, black red for the equipment. Equipped creature gets plus two, plus two, three to equip to a normal creature, one to equip to a knight. Slaying Fire, two in a red for the instant, deals three damage to any target. With Adamant, deals four damage instead. And Cauldron Familiar, single black for the 1-1. One, one. When it ETBs, each opponent loses a life and you gain one life. And you can sacrifice a food to return Cauldron Familiar from your graveyard to the battlefield. So this is a really interesting follow-up to Oathsworn Knight because you've got a card in Cauldron Familiar that you would be happy to play in a black deck. I mean, I think, you know, again, it needs some work. But I do think Oathsworn Knight is probably not at its best in a black-green deck where Cauldron Familiar is at its best. So I think it probably, not only because it doesn't line up super well in the kinds of black decks you'll want Oathsworn Knight in, uh, it also is, I think, worse on power level than slaying fire steel claw lance and probably even trapped in the tower this early in a draft so then i think that puts me in a spot of well am i taking slaying fire like maybe compare the two removal spells here am i taking slaying fire over trapped in the tower and i think yes like the burn the fact that this can go face it's an instant i think that puts it over the top of trapped in the tower and then i'm comparing okay do i take slaying fire as a single red card versus steel claw lance which is a black red card so it's sort of interesting like if you end up in black red, you'll play both Slaying Fire and Oathsworn Knight. And I think if I knew I was going to be in black red, I would rank Steel Claw Lance as a better pick for that deck. But I don't know that to be the case. And this is sort of why these gold uncommons, these like just, you know, single pip of each color cards feel a little committing early in a draft. And I think that would leave me with the nod of Slaying Fire. But these cards are close. Like we're talking about two B plus cards here. Right. But it's such a cost for the gold card, right? Because if you don't end up in black, you get pushed off of both cards. Whereas Slaying Fire leaves you so many more outs to get into a good deck. And if you, I just feel like there's no need. Whereas other formats, I sort of felt like, yeah, I wanted to take flyers on cards like Steel Claw Lance because if you get there, your deck is so much better than the other decks. But I just don't think that's the case here. I think it's so doable to just get an outstanding deck, draft in and draft out just by drafting the hard way and finding your lane. Yeah, I had an interesting discussion 
I think it maybe was in Discord. But so one of my earlier drafts I had was I took Feasting Troll King first in pack one, pick one over Revenge of Ravens. And it was that's the two green, 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 seven, six, trample, vigilance, kind of bring it back with three food tokens. Um I think that card is just way too color committing when you have other options for the exact reason you're talking about. Like it's a powerful card, but it's not a card I'm interested in taking when there are other good options in the pack, because I feel like the percent chance that I'm going to play Feasting Troll King at the end of the draft is so low. That makes sense to me. Sweet. So you took Slaying Fire here. So now we've got good black rare, good red uncommon removal spell. Where are we at next? Pack one, pick three. You got some interesting choices. No top commons to look at. So you're checking out the uncommons. And the only two in contention are Sorcerer's Broom. Two colorless mana for the two one. When you sacrifice another permanent, you may pay three. If you do, make a copy of Sorcerer's Broom. And Inspiring Veteran, red, white for the two two. Other knights you control get plus one, plus one. It's colorless, baby. You just got to take the broom, sweep it up. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's tempting to say you just took Slaying Fire. Inspiring Veteran's going to be great if you get there in red-white. Certainly, if you end up red-white, Inspiring Veteran will be a better card than Sorcerer's Broom in your deck. 100%. But you think about... I don't know, it's not quite about replacement level, but this is where we're talking about delaying that decision. And Sorcerer's Broom, yeah, is probably not going to be good in red-white, and you might even cut it at the end of the draft. And you will be bummed if you end up in red-white that you pass Inspiring Veteran here. But it's also hard to imagine a world where you want your seat wants to be red white and this inspiring veteran like i've seen it wheel sometimes in pack one like you can get those strong signals pretty late in pack one sometimes and i just think broom does so so much for so little cost and is colorless that's why i want to take it here yeah i agree i think broom represents a much higher ceiling card too is much more flexible and is a much higher ceiling than veteran yes but i do want to shout out that veteran has wheeled in pack one and i think that's pretty wrong red white aggro is a real deck and i don't think inspiring veterans should be wheeling and i do think aggro is totally 100 viable in throne of eldraine i mean i think that's very clear that both of us feel that way from last week's episode talking about how we think that aggro is good control is good we don't feel like any of the colors are bad and i stand by that i'm very happy to end up in red white and actually i think for the first time ever red white red and white on their own and red white as a color pair are my most drafted decks wait what yeah wow yeah, red-white as a color pair for me is not really that close. And this doesn't quite count the monocolor decks that I've had, but red-white as a color pair, I've had it 10 times, and the next closest number of a color pair is six in blue, red, and white, black. That's incredible. Yeah, I think it suffers from people having M20 or War of the Spark or even Modern Horizon issues with white that I think people are avoiding that right now when I think that's incorrect. I think that deck is just good. Yep. Moving on to pack one, pick four with an Oathsworn Knight, a Slaying Fire, and a Sorcerer's Broom in our pile. You see the following cards as options. There's no top commons here. And then moving on to the uncommons, there is a Lucky Clover, two mana for the artifact. When you cast an adventure, instant or sorcery spell, copy it. You may choose new targets for the copy. There's also an Emberth Shieldbreaker, one in red for the 2-1 Knight, and has the adventure battle display, red for the sorcery, destroy target artifact. This is really interesting. So you've got a red card, a black card, and a colorless card so far, and now you're looking at a red card and a colorless card. Though Lucky Clover is colorless, but has colored implications, like I think is probably best in a blue-black adventure deck where like you care about the double mill from Secret Keepers or making people discard four from the like four or five flyer, the Reaper. Um, I think it's also good in, you know, green, white, red, white where you're primarily doubling combat tricks. I think that can be quite scary. Um, But, you know, it does have sort of colored considerations in that way that like 
Lucky Clover isn't going to be great in like a blue red deck or whatever. Like it could be, maybe you end up with some haggles or whatever, but it does have some like identities that are different. Like you don't really probably want it in a blue white deck or whatever. So I think Lucky Clover is colorless in its actuality, but there's a lot more to, to dive into there. And Embrith Shieldbreaker is very strong. So you don't have really a card yet that's pulling you into Lucky Clover, like if you were starting with a murderous rider, say, like we had for my last draft, I think this would be a slam dunk pick to grab Lucky Clover. But since you don't, and you've got a red card already that you like to play, and Embrith Shieldbreaker is so good, I think I would give that the nod here over the quote-unquote colorless card. Right. Absolutely. Next couple packs are pretty weak and were not super interesting decision points. I'm going to fast forward through those a little bit. We picked up a couple of Brimstone trebuchets in pick five and pick six. That's the two and a red one, three defender reach. Taps to deal damage each opponent. Whenever a knight ETBs, you untap Brimstone Trebuchet. And then moving on to pack one, pick seven. So you now have four red cards in your pile. Slaying Fire, Shieldbreaker, Trebuchet, Trebuchet. You get the black card you first picked in Osworn Knight, and you've got Sorcerer's Brim as a colorless card. You see no top commons, although a common I would consider above replacement level, which is Fairy Guide Mother. Or is that in our top commons? I have it as number four in white behind Tactician 1, Trapped in Tower 2, Flutterfox 3. Yeah, I think I'm still on it as number four as well, although I think you can make a case for being number three ahead of Flutterfox. But definitely above replacement level for me. That's a card that sticks out as a card I actively want to play if I'm white. Yes. So that sort of stands out to me, a single white for the 1-1 flyer, and then has the adventure one and a white target creature gets plus two plus one and gains flying until end of turn at sorcery speed. One of the reasons I think this card is worth pointing out here versus say another card in the pack forever young, which is one in a black sorcery, put any number of target creature cards from your graveyard on top of your library, draw a card. This is a good card. This is a card I want in like all of my black decks, but it is a card that you don't really want multiples of like you're probably not happy playing certainly not three, I would say, of this card, like maybe two sometimes. It's a card you want one of. And so it's not something you really need to think about here. It's like, well, if black is open, I'm probably going to get a copy of Forever Young. A card like Fairy Guide Mother, you're just playing all the copies that you get in your white decks. And so that's why it feels like it's above replacement level, because you might miss out on it and be like, oh man, I do wish I had three of them instead of just two or whatever. Right. And then at Uncommon here, Trail of Crumbs, pack one, pick seven, which is way too late for Oof, this card. Yeah. One on green for the enchantment. When it ETBs, you make a food token. Whenever you sacrifice a food, you can pay one. If you do, look at the top two cards of your library, and you may put a permanent card from among them into your hand. So Trail of Crumbs is super, super powerful. It's like kind of a, a build around because you do want to have as many food producers as possible, but it's also just like good on its own. You've already got a Sorcerer's Broom that it goes well with. The only thing that makes me hesitant to take it here, and I would still definitely take it here is that i want to think about how it's going to line up with the picks i already have and trail of crumbs is not at its best in a green red deck it's probably close to at its worst i would say in a green red deck like you're just not really trying to do the food grindy thing especially with what you've got so far with your trebuchets and your slaying fire fairy guide mother lines up a lot better with the red cards that you have but that said, Trail of Crumbs is just too powerful to pass up on here. I agree. I'm happy pack one, pick one in Trail of Crumbs. Yeah. I'm not going to pass a card that powerful pack one, pick seven. I agree. So snatch that up there. Pack one, pick eight, took a fairy guide mother. And this draft was difficult. Ended up waffling quite a bit. Wheeled the cauldron familiar and had like sort of two decks going on. I had this red deck, heavy red deck. And I also had like four very four or five very good pieces to the starts of a good black green food deck and i ended up sort of waffling between both of those decks for most of the draft and ultimately getting there on a heavy base red deck 
with about a 10-7 mana base in favor of red over white. Nice, yeah. It's a tough draft to navigate for sure. All right, so I've got one more for you, Ben. This first pack is a doozy. We've got, in terms of our top commons, we've got three to take a look at here. So there's a Trapped in the Tower and an Ardenville Tactician. And then there's also a Curious Pair, which is really bringing up the rear there as our number three green common and not something that we're like, definitely looking to first pick at all. Um, But the Trapped in the Tower and the Tactician are important to note, and we would be on Tactician over Trapped here. And then looking at the Uncommons, there's a Wandermare, the one green-white 3-3 that grows every time you cast an adventure. There's an Order of Midnight, that's one and a black for a 2-2 with flying. Uh, It has an adventure of Alter Fate, one and a black return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And then our Rare is Folio of Fancies, one and a blue for an artifact. Players have no maximum hand size. X, X, tap, each player draws X cards, or two and a blue tap, each opponent puts a number of cards equal to the number of cards in their hand from the top of their library into their graveyard. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting pick here. And I just want to throw another card out at you here because I'm kind of thinking about it right now. Where would you be at on pack one, pick one, order of midnight versus bake into a pie? I'm on order of midnight first. I think I am too. So and then I just moving back to pick orders, there are a lot of uncommons and rares that you can just say are better than all the commons. Like that's a way to classify a large chunk of cards if you're trying to think pick orders, right? If you've ever looked at, I don't think they post these anymore, but they used to, like when Paul Chion was still uh, at CFB but before he went to Wizards of the Coast, he would like film the limited testing meetings and they put them up after the Pro Tour on Channel Fireball. And you can still go back and watch them. And this is how they're like ordering cards. Like they're thinking about cards in the sense of like, what's the worst rare that you would still take over all the uncommons and commons? What's the worst uncommon that you're still taking over all the commons? Like they're really trying to break things up there because it's a really easy line to draw in the sand. Right. So just wanted to throw that out here. So order of midnight over all the commons. Mm -hmm. And then I think you're comparing order to folio of fancies as, you know, what a lot of people consider a bomb rare. And I do think it's a bomb rare, but it's a very matchup dependent bomb rare. I've seen it be great and unbeatable. And I've also seen it be unplayable. So I think I'm personally on order of midnight as the more flexible, consistent car that's going to do work draft in and draft out, as opposed to the high upside folio of fancies. And I think that's a pretty contentious pick. And I have a feeling a lot of people would disagree with that pick. Yeah, so I have the same feeling I landed on order of midnight because like, I think it's a B plus and I know it's going to be a B plus all the time. It's just always going to do the thing that it says it's going to do on the card. Whereas Folio, and this I think also stems from my discomfort in drafting blue in this format right now, because I don't have a good sense of when to take the commons. And and then once I'm in blue, where those commons stack up, like, do I take so tiny number one over secret keeper number three or all that stuff? I don't feel like I've got a good sense of it at all. And I think that's really important for drafting around a card like Folio Fancies at the start of a draft here. So that's where I landed. Pack one, pick two. We've got some more top commons here. There's a Scorching Dragonfire, the one on a red deal three. There's a Merfolk Secret Keeper, a single blue for the 0-4, and it has Venture Deeper as the adventure to mill your opponent for four. And then comparing those cards to our uncommons, we've got a Merrileaf Pixie, green and a blue for a 2-2 flyer that can tap to add green or a blue. Burning Yard Trainer again, the 3-3 Trample Haste that gives plus two, plus two to another knight. 
and then animating fairy two in a blue for a two two with flying and then it has the adventure of bring to life two in a blue target non-creature artifact you control becomes a zero zero artifact creature put four plus one plus one counters on it yeah this is an interesting pick here i think there's a lot of options there's no black card right so we're branching out into a new color here right i think this is where your picks already start to influence each other right because if you take folio of fancies I think the staying blue tiebreaker is enough to push you towards animating fairy as a better card than secret keeper here. Or maybe you want to go super deep on mill and you want to take secret keeper to match up with your full of fancies and try to go super hard. So a lot of interesting considerations there. Yeah, but I think with order of midnight, you're much more open to taking a card like scorching dragon fire here, which I think is more flexible and more powerful than merrily pixie. So ultimately, I'm between dragon fire and animating fairy. I think I ultimately would land on Animating Fairy as a more powerful card than Scorching Dragonfire here, but that's very close and I think comes down to preference and which direction you want to go. Yeah, I landed on the Dragonfire here. I think also part of my consideration was I felt that the folio was probably going to get snapped up like close to my left. And I was like, maybe this is probably too like leveling myself or whatever, but I was a little concerned about passing folio and then trying to get into blue for animating fairy. And I felt like that was enough of a tiebreaker with these cards being close in power level uh, that I took Scorching Dragonfire. So let me ask you this. Where are you at pack one, pick one? Let's say you've not made a pick. Are you still on Dragonfire over animating fairy? It's close. I think I'm on animating fairy, but I, I, I don't know. I think they're both Bs, right? Yeah, they're the same grade, I think. Yeah. So I think I'm on Animating Fairy Pack 1, Pick 1. And so maybe, you know, the signals you receive are much more important than the signals you send. But Folio of Fancies feels like a card that people are going to be super high on and want to dive into. I hear that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's right there. But I took the Dragonfire, so I've got Order of Midnight into Scorching Dragonfire. Pack 1, Pick 3. The only top commons here are Flutterfox, the one in a white 2-2. As long as you control an artifact or enchantment, it has Flying. I think that's our only one here. There's a Rimrock Knight, honorable mention. And then moving on to the uncommons, there's Venerable Knight, single white for a 2-1. When it dies, put a plus plus one counter on target knight you control. Into the story, five blue blue for the instant draw four cards. Costs three less to cast if an opponent has seven or more cards in their graveyard. And then Elite Headhunter, the Rakdos hybrid, 2-3 knight with menace. Yeah, and I think Rimrock Knight is an honorable mention because it's above replacement level, right? Yes. Maybe it's not in our current list of top commons and maybe it should end up there, but there are a lot of red commons that are above replacement level. Yeah, I agree. So I think you're you're considering Remark Knight as it matches up with Scorching Dragonfire, but ultimately I think, you know, Elite Headhunter goes with both of your first picks. You could play all three cards in the same deck, or you could pivot off one of those colors and go mono red, mono black. So I think Elite Headhunter is the most powerful card in the pack here and matches up with your first two picks. So you slam dunk that here. Sure did and sure agree with that. Pack one, pick four. Top commons to talk about here, Trapped in the Tower, Rimrock Knight, and Curious Pair. And then Uncommons, there's a Covetous Urge. This is the Demir hybrid card, the four mana sorcery. Target opponent reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from that player's graveyard or hand. You exile it, and then you can cast that card for as long as it remains exiled, and you may spend mana as though or mana of any color to cast that spell. Yeah, this is interesting. I think you can make a case for Rimrock Knight or Covetous Urge. Trapped in a Tower is a little harder to make a case for. I think if Trapped in a Tower were Tactician, would you be tempted to take it here at all? Not with something as powerful as Covetous Urge, but if Covetous Urge weren't here, yes, I think I would. So I think Covetous Urge for me is pretty committing at this point. Like you're, you're, I guess you're abandoning Dragonfire, but that you end up in a spot where you've got like essentially three, four drops to start your draft, which I don't love. But I think 
ultimately it's more powerful enough than Rimrock Knight and Trapped in a Tower that I would take it here. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Also, Order of Midnight is not a four drop, baby. It's just it's just flexible. It slices, it dices, it returns creatures, it attacks. You want a two two on turn two, you got it. Like don't don't call it a four drop. It's a late game card, I think, in optimal mode. Sure, but one of the reasons it's so good is you can just jam it on turn two. Right. All right, so I grabbed Covetous Urge. I just really like that card. I'm taking the hybrid cards super highly, but I, I agree. I think it's interesting to throw out the Ardenville Tactician as an option there. I think it's correct to take those hybrid cards super highly. They're very powerful, and they're deceptively flexible. Yes, that's the thing that is so good about them. Um. So then pack one, pick five. No top commons to speak of. The only one that's really like above replacement level is Fairy Guide Mother. And then the only other card I think to talk about here in the pack is Once in Future, the three and a green instant with Adamant, you get to return two cards from your graveyard to your hand. Without it, you just get one back and then one on top of your library. Yeah, I think this is a tough choice. I think you're not super likely to play either of these cards the way your draft is shaping out right now. Right. I think... I don't know what I think. So I'll tell you where I'm at here. I think Once in Future is a better card than Fairy Guide Mother in a vacuum. I get, again, I think we're very far away from playing both of them. And they're both sort of color committing because Once in Future, you really only want to play it in a heavy green deck because you want that adamant bonus. But Fairy Guide Mother is a white one drop. So you're really only playing Fairy Guide Mother in a heavy white deck because you want to be able to consistently cast it on turn one or be able to gift of the fae and cast it in the same turn which requires white white so where i ultimately landed on was a tiebreaker here not on maybe power level but on the fact that just like white is open a lot and fairy guide mother is a totally good card in my opinion and i'm happy to take it here and then if white's gonna flow let's get into it that makes sense to me i'm in all right and then pack one pick six holy hybrids batman there's a fireborn knight that's the boros hybrid card the two three double striker you can pay four boros to give it plus and plus one until end of turn there's a rimrock knight as a common that's as a, another honorable mention another above replacement level card and the other uncommon in the pack is thunderous snapper that's the simic hybrid the four four that whenever you cast a spell with cmc five or more you draw a card yeah i think this is a pretty clear Fireborn Knight. It could go along with your Elite Headhunter and Scorching Dragonfire in a mono red deck. You don't know what's going to happen. I think it's the best card in the pack. You're way far away from Thunderous Snapper, and it's so much better than Rimrock Knight that it's worth taking a chance on here. And so this is one of the reasons why I like these hybrid cards so much. So I have three of them right now, right? And so I'm six picks deep. It may look like I'm all over the place, but in reality... I can go a ton of directions and have like good cards so far, right? I could go black red and that means I have order of midnight, scorching dragon fire and elite headhunter. I could go mono black and get covetous urge in there. I could go mono red and I could have headhunter, scorching dragon fire and fireborn knight. I could even be going red white with the guide mother and the fireborn knight and the dragon fire. There are so many different directions I have right now and all of them are pretty powerful. Right. You've got like four very powerful cards in about four totally different lanes to go down. Right. And so then it just is a matter of time of like figuring out what are the late cards that I'm going to get that are above replacement level? Am I going to get the fairy guide mothers? Am I going to get the Rimrock Knights? Whatever. And that will then dictate where I end up. Right. And I think that's the last piece of the puzzle to finding your lane, right? Is knowing which are the best like 16th through 23rd cards you can get that are going to match up with your best cards to help give you the most synergy to boost the power level of those cards that you're putting in your deck as your last picks. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, I love this format so much. 
I love this format so much too. And if you are finding yourself navigating these drafts and you are struggling to find out which cards are above replacement level, like, and that's not necessarily easy to do. Like I remember being super lost in Dominaria. Like I just remember you were winning and I was losing so much. And all you can do, I think if that's the case is just reach out and talk to people that are winning and finding out where they're valuing cards. I think that's the single best thing you can do if you're struggling in a format is just talk to people about which cards they view as above replacement level, what their top commons are, what they're prioritizing, and look at their draft logs and just start dialogues with people that are doing well in the format. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love getting to talk to you every week and one of the reasons why I think the Discord is just fire. Yep, absolutely. Great place to wrap us up there. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. If you want to catch us on Twitch and Twitter, Ben's got Fall Break, baby. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Skullknocker Ogre is not an uncommon, is it? Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Oh, God, that card's terrible. Um... <laughs> <laughs>